0: your presentation. 38 of the Florida Sound Archive Podcast. I'm Jeff Kaiser. It is August 7th, 2022. Man, I can't believe we are already in August. Fall is almost here. Got a really wonderful guest on with me today. Someone I've been really looking forward to interviewing. You may know him from his band Futurisk. He's the founder of, Also, he's been in a ton of other bands, Shake Space, Receptors, 8-Bit Operators, his most recent project, The Red Window. Let's welcome into the podcast, Jeremy Colasine. Jeremy, how are you, my friend?
1: I'm great. Thank you.
0: It's good to have you on. How have you been doing?
1: Okay. Uh, Getting used to the heat in Florida. I like it. And then, right when I started liking it, it got even hotter. So <laughs> that's
0: Florida heat, like for you, that too, right? I suppose. <laughs> so before you came back to Florida, you where were you in Virginia?
1: Yeah, uh, Roanoke, Virginia, where the uh, Blue Ridge Parkway crosses the Appalachian Trail. Beautiful place.
0: You're originally from the UK, right? Yes. The accent, I mean, just gives it away, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, they still got our accents. Me and my whole family still have. Mine has a little swing it. it almost sounds a little Australian or something now, I guess. But um,
0: How you know, long have you been in the U.S. for?
1: I've been here since I was 13. So it's, um, and I'm now in my 60s, you know. So I've been here most of my childhood was in, in the U.K., you know, I, I, sometimes I wonder why we still have our accents, and I think it's because they uh, tried to, uh, growing up as a Cockney, they would force you to learn not to speak Cockney. To this day, I can't even fake a Cockney accent.
0: So when you came to the U.S., was Florida the first place you came to? Was there somewhere else you came first?
1: No, we came to Florida first.
0: Mm. Why Florida?
1: I think it's mainly because they had sort of um, – the cold wasn't good for the uh, for health reasons
0: mm.
1: you know i think it was good for them you know it was uh, it's uh, london was really sort of bad at the time and it would be for probably about another decade so
0: what part of florida did you land in when you first came here
1: um, pompano beach it okay. was with uh, yeah uh, and, um, and so i'm still it's still here like i'm right here in lighthouse point right now so it's really part of pompano beach mm-hmm. right um, I like it and it's um, right just about five minutes from Deerfield Beach which is really nice
0: What were some of your earliest memories of music and did your parents have any influence or who were some of your biggest influences too of that time?
1: Uh, well, big deal to me was right before we left England, my older brother brought me to see uh, which was the first show of the last tour of Bowie's Ziggy Stardust tour, and I was like 12.
0: <laughs> nice. And, it like,
1: and it like that pretty much, I, I, was, I was like arrested development from then on. And I still am, like still, I'm still there, I think. In high school, um, I was uh, fortunate to meet uh, Frank Lardino, you know, and he was like a, a kindred soul, first gave me some, uh, <laughs> some slack in gym because I had a uh, Elton John Yellow Brick Road shirt, which I totally deserved the like, slacking game. But then I <laughs> explained to him why, because he had a Yes T-shirt and it's like, oh, and so I told him, well, you know, I went into the whole Genesis better than Yes thing. So, <laughs> and then the reason I had the um, Yellow Brick Road is because there's so much awesome synthesizer on the album. You know, uh, really, if you listen to his it, great album, and I'm not a music snob, right? So I proved that to Frank Laudina. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so we became really good friends. And then um, we both got, Yeah, all I remember is us getting into Sparks. I was all really, really into Roxy music, big time. Roxy music, Bowie, and Eno, anything Eno did, we would run to um, SIDS on the beach. Okay. Grab it. And then later on Peaches, Peaches was awesome. They used to let me go in there and uh, use their shrink wrap machine until someone fig- figured out they would let me use their shrink wrap machine. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: nice. <laughs> like when I was going in, they're like, yeah, for an easy, he's, like, uh, he's like, I've got a big box of them. He goes, uh, and one day they got a new manager and a guy walks in, he goes, uh, what are you doing? He goes, I'm, oh, shrink wrapping, man, thanks, cool. <laughs> he goes, you're not going to put all those in this store, right? I said, no, I'm going to put them in all over the place. <laughs> but um, Peaches was awesome. We sold a lot. I used to just drive around and put them in all the stores, you know. Yeah. Uh, from West Palm Beach down to uh, Miami. And then Open Books and Records, uh, Leslie Wimmer, Ted Godfrey, they were really nice, encouraging. In that, um, my first real show with the guitar it was at their store. My first shows was futuristic with just a drum machine put through an amplifier with a that had a, a tremolo, and so and then so the drum machine through the uh, guitar synthesizer uh, affecting the filter and then a delay uh, coupled with the um, you know the tremolo. Obviously, you get those you get those sound shifts in rhythm. And it's just like something Steve Reich would, would have done, you know, it's nothing new. But uh, it was in the punk, it was, yeah, it was like, I mean, what was great is you could, it was like what Eno did. He used the pop platform to reintroduce avant-garde art uh, systems like his oblique strategies, which was just what Fluxus did, you know. So this was just the same thing. It's like, okay, if I can play anything, I'm gonna play anything. So my, my first show is actually at the Premier Lounge. And I think the happiness boys also, and all it was, it was called a complex of rhythms or something, and I was just trying to make, uh, I got like, say I stole the name from the Frippin' Eno index of metals, you know? And this was, my, this was like the very, very, very poor man's version. You know?
0: <laughs> what year was this?
1: Oh, 79. Okay. Early 79.
0: What was the reaction to that first show that people had? <laughs> to that
1: first show, that was awesome. Oh, I wish I remember the name of the guy who owned it. And I still owe him 10 bucks now to this day for the bar tab. But um, <laughs> 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 hey, give me your address, man. I'll send you a, 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 a record uh, if, you, if you're listening. I go, anyway, so yeah, that one, that was one I, 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 would, I set it up. And the whole point was, it was i did it for three minutes and 33 seconds which is like the perfect pop song it's three minutes and 30 seconds and so uh, so i would turn it on let it start going and i would sit in the audience so ultimately what would happen like a roadie would come up in this case what happened is the roadie came up onto stage and like goes to turn it off again ready to turn it off and i'd have to stand up and say it's not done yet and they go scurrying <laughs> off <you know? laughs> And I look at my watch now, it's not three minutes and thirty six. I said three minutes thirty-three. But uh, yeah, so that was that. I did that one time at Premiere. I think Frank Lardino might have been there for that one. I did another rhythm box one a couple of months later at the Agora, which was just like during a warm-up. My older brother knew um I think a sound guy at the Agora. So he let me go up there and I did this uh drum machine thing, and that was that was just like a joke, kind of. But then later we would play the Agora again uh, as a band. And that was pretty good. But uh, no no one really showed up. The only people who showed up to that, it was really a good show though, uh, musically. The band Smegma, Sheer Smegma, there's two bands. And and I think they had to change the name to Sheer Smegma. And that was the wife of uh, Daisy Parsons. That was like sort of, so me and Frank Lardino, we Start this band called Art Decadence, <laughs> which was you know, right getting out of high school. Um, with these two guys that agreed to play our punk songs, if we've agreed to play Boz Skaggs's Dirty Low Down song, it's a good and, one, uh, and uh, Tom Petty's mm-hmm. uh, what well, something by Tom Petty Breakdown. So it's a breakdown and a low down. I know, yeah, the parents needed those two songs for us to be playing free in their garage, damn it. So we even <laughs> owned it. So we learned them, you know, <laughs> they were really nice people, they nice guys. So, but then I forced them to learn, and Frank Lardino forced them to learn, um, like uh, we had to learn punk, and they were like, they were with it, but they weren't with it. And all their friends were making fun of them for playing punk, you know. So then eventually we broke that band up, and uh, that's why I end up. How that, I don't know if I should tell that story. That was Frank Lardino. How, why that band broke up is because Frank Lardino set the show up for us, at the Boca Raton rec hall or something like that. And I got drunk and uh, we played the song. Uh, every song ended up uh, turning into uh, the same song at the end. <laughs> like I love this, I was obsessed with the song Aerospace Age Inferno by um, uh, Robert Calvert, Hawkwind's song. Mm. And we played a cover of that song. It's just a, a particular kind of strumming on, a, on an A chord or an E chord or whatever. So at the end of every, so they, when they would ask for a uh, request that I didn't like, you know, <laughs> it would start off serious and then by the halfway through it, turns into Aerospace Age Inferno version. <laughs> 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 I think one was Take It Easy by the Eagles. So yeah, but then we uh, we were doing covers and one of the bands we really dug was um Ubu. It was like, that's really, uh, me and Frank idea. really like Perubu because uh, we like the way it sort of fell apart like the Devo, Devo was like that too, where it was almost prog, but it, it wasn't played with an acrobatic style, you know? It was almost, there was sort of jazz aspect to it. And, uh, and that kind of, it's like that kind of music, electronic music too. It was kind of that, a lot of times, you were, I, don't, I started thinking like, we were pretty much doing it for other musicians, you know, like other, because there was no one, in, <laughs> no one around that was this, I don't know who we thought was going to hear it and like it. Right. Other than the people we liked that were famous and stuff like which wasn't that far f- f- you know, far flung or far fetched or whatever, you know, to, to in retrospect. <laughs> you know.
0: Who was the first person down there that really took note of what you were doing and took it seriously?
1: Cameron Kohick, the journalist, he's awesome. He's now a lawyer. I had to say, really, the only people who showed us any love down here were um, journalists. Paul Beeman was um, okay my first entree into the uh, punk scene was um, I went to see the eat okay I was hanging around these guys that brought out this magazine called Mouth of the Rat. It's a really important part of beginning of punk where wrote about like cichlids and uh, everything and I went and saw the cichlids with my old with my brother. Um, it was at a place called the Tight Squeeze, and they, they were great. They actually, they did, they were encouraging too, it was encouraging. Um, Debbie Denise, I mean, she was like really, she was as good as like one of the Runaways or something. And uh, Bobby Tack, man, he was like ready for big time, I thought, they were great. And even like the bass player and everything, and, and the guitarist, Um, he uh, had another band after that, Um, uh, Used People or something. They were having trouble finding audiences. You know, you call something punk, people didn't like the word punk, so they came up mm-hmm. with new wave. And then the punks like don't want to use the word new wave because it's like selling out. And then you say, oh well, we better now go go with new wave. So that's what we, did. you know, so you go with new wave. And then uh, before you know, it, it's dead. New wave's dead. Yeah. <laughs> and like there's this new thing coming out. And that's really yeah, it's what I was originally calling like we were calling that synth wave. Where I thought now they call synth wave something else like. It has this Miami overtones of the 80s. And the only, there was some good Miami bass and some really good like freestyle going on, but there was no synth wave going on you right. know, in Miami. But, uh, but yeah, no, not bringing down the synths that were being used in Miami in the 80s. I regret kind of not getting more into that. We sort of were heading that way with the last of our songs, me and Richie after Jack left. We were just using the drum machine there. 81, too, we were pretty uh, drum machined
0: out. <laughs> How did you link up with Richard Hess and Jack Howard?
1: Um, well, I had the original band, and we had. Uh, I broke up with them because I got a new synth, and I went sort of like an ego trip, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then I just had like a, the sequencer. I just wanted to do things that I didn't have to answer to a bass player and a drummer and, a, and another singer and another front man's persona. Which is what that uh, turned into. And so, uh, on one on one sort of crazed night, I fired them all, and and then just kept the name Futurist since I started with it alone anyway. And um, got Jack back, who was originally in the band anyway, and I like his drumming. And then um, I found a thing, same uh, like a, I, I found a, a synthesizer player called uh, Vinny. Scaleri. not to be confused with Vinnie Scrimenti, who ended up being a drummer later for Future. <laughs> and mm-hmm. two Vinny. Vinny one was uh, he was uh, he was he introduced me to Richie. And uh, our first lineup was four of us. Where <laughs> one of our first shows was one of our most probably notable shows, where we played on the t- on the roof of um, uh, Boca Raton High School. This would have been, I guess, 1981 or 82. Oh gosh, whenever the uh, shuttle was launched, it was like the same day, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: 82, I think. So anyway, so we played, and it was during lunchtime. And so, and I'm dressed in the military gear and which he has his like, uh, you know, sort of um, workman's clothes kind of thing jack has his sort of military stuff and then uh, Vinny scolari I-, I apologize if i'm saying that wrong to anybody who knows him not no longer with us but um he did become a ufo hunter after this and he's proud of it but <laughs> this is all um he was up there in a flight suit and a yellow flight suit and a cap and like i think he even did the thing underneath like under the chin <laughs> So what we get for playing at lunchtime is Richie got hit in the head with a half-eaten apple, a half-eaten sandwich flew by my head, and then poor Vinnie got hit in the head with a rock, like seriously, like hard. You know, it was like really got us kind of mad and like swore at the kids. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I swore at those kids that day. So, um, yeah, so then we played, (laughs) and I was thinking that's what we get for playing at lunchtime, man, you know, the uh, sandwiches and apples flying everywhere. So, uh, and that was um, a girl named Jan set that show up for us, and I always felt bad because I was supposed to help her with her um, talent show, and then after that happened, he's like, man, I ain't going back to that school, (laughs) (laughs) or if I do, I I won't eat first
0: so would you say that working with those two guys though was like the like was that like the best years of futurist at that point
1: yeah yeah it was like when we didn't know what we were doing but yet we what we did was cool like as we every what we thought about like i'm thinking about what we threw away and what we kept right so which bad ideas uh didn't pan out that the, with that lineup like. Digging for like leftovers, you know what I mean? That because because even those were to have something, uh, it's like oh man, you know, it's so, there was something that we thought was just a divorce, you know it wasn't enough for a song. Or now it's you know, you, you needed an ABA and a bridge and all that. Now you just need a A, you know. <laughs> you know? Right. It's just back to linear writing, which is like you know it's you know, it's where funk comes from, and Eno sort of brought that back in, I think. But um but it's uh you know who knew that you could get it if we were bold enough to just keep going and just do put that out it would have been braver you know yeah uh,
0: were you guys just like musical partners or were you friends outside of the band you hung out you went to shows that sort of thing
1: I mean, we were friends I mean uh, me and Jack were more friends because we uh, you know I'm sort of uh, you know like there's some guys who they drink some guys they don't drink some guys do drugs some yeah sometimes the the, the clicks kind of break up unfortunately sometimes they yeah, people uh, gravitate to people who have the same sort of habits and stuff and that was probably you know that's their downfall always and there's, there's a boring old story uh, the sort of thing yeah they, every band has that story you know so- and-so went this way and drugs and whatnot but it definitely well, it did play into it you know mm. uh, but not I don't think it affected the, um, you know, there was more psychedelics than, uh, and what ruined it at the end, you know, it was used creatively and to create things and not to party like, and it wasn't like to, like, just like when we started a band, other bands were getting it to get girlfriends and stuff, you know, it's like whatever, which we were, I guess, (laughs) subconsciously. But it wasn't. It was to put out something that even if no one likes it, like uh, 10 years from now, you say, look what I had balls to do, you know? So that way it doesn't matter. You never worry about making money, right? Because because then, right. then, then if you lose money, it's like, well, well, how could I have made money with that? Right. <laughs> and it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's sort of, you never feel defeated, you know?
0: Let's take a moment to talk about the very first release from Futurisk from 1980. It was the very first seven-inch release. Uh, There were two songs on it, What We Have to Have, and You're in the Army Now. And then when the box set came out fairly recently, it had a different title called The Sound of Futurism. So can you talk a little bit about the first seven-inch and the history of that one?
1: Yeah. Well, um, I went to this competition. Uh, I added my guitar. To the drum machine thing, I had this sort of uh, musical thing with the drum machine and synthesizer, and then uh, Wilton Manners—they had a uh, competition uh, for original music. There was flyers lying around, and I said, "What the heck?" But it said there was a uh, the prize was like six hundred dollars and like six hours of twenty-four track recording time. I thought, "Well, well gosh, you know," uh, I said, "What have I got to lose?" So I show up to this uh, uh, thing and there's a guy with a 12-piece orchestra and it's like, oh my God, you know, and then um, so he does his with a mandolin and like everything, flutes and uh, recorders, and it was beautiful. He's like, man, well, at least if I lose, I'll be glad I lost to this guy. Right. Uh, He deserves to win. And -hmm. I did absolutely didn't think I would win, but it was based like, 90 percent on originality or something Mm -hmm. (laughs) being up there (laughs) they've never seen anything before so I get up there and and the cord the cable thing kept cutting out so one of the guys had to come and like hold the cable for me so I thought oh this is a nightmare what a nightmare I'm playing in The guy's like having to stand there, hold the cable, you know, this is so bad, you know, he's going, you know, and so, and then I end up winning. It blows my mind. (laughs) And so I take that money and I spend it on, um, I use the money. I form the band and call it futurist. I get, so it was just me, Frank and, um, and, um, and Jack. And so it's all overdubbing me on the guitar and the bass. And so it's really the first time me playing bass ever. I'd never ever played a bass ever. On that record, you hear it. We have like two, an album at least worth of stuff that I recorded with um, Frank Lardino, um, Jeff Marcus, and um, Vinnie Scrementi. And they're they're all good, but they're too poppy. and The words are embarrassing. So then they left, they started that, they started that uh, Radio Berlin.
0: Weren't they like one of the only other bands down in South Florida at that time that kind of had that more electronic rock sound? Yeah,
1: yeah. they carried on pretty much what we were doing. uh, Yeah. But um, I kind of went more electronic than them. uh, Right. Because I had just two synthesizers and a drummer. They were my band and they, you know, they went off and did do Frank songs. I guess I didn't have room in my brain for enough. And I invited it at first. And I welcomed it, but it, it was, um, I felt it was a bit overpowering. It's sort of, sort of alpha dog shit, you know, and like that. And I just basically yeah. find him one day when I was um, on the purple micro dog, to be honest. <laughs>
0: what was that like for you back then? Considering like now every idea has been done a gazillion times. And back then, especially down in the South, there, there wasn't really any other musicians, bands really playing the style of punk you were playing with all the electronic and synth added in. So what was that like for you and your bandmates just being so different than all the other your contemporaries that were around at the same time?
1: Yeah I I think in our minds we were playing to the same people that Devo was playing to even though they weren't out there in the they didn't weren't filling the seat. In spirit, their audience was there.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: you know, I mean, we played one time, one of the last shows we played with Jack down at a place on um, Delray Beach. that was called The Phoenix. And at the time, it was kind of like a biker place. But it was, we, and we, you know, we were, at that time, we were really weird, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say, you know, I mean, we were very metallic set. We were getting more industrial, not more... Everything else was getting more synth poppy and musical, like Howard Jones. and, and But it was all right. Uh, and that's what saved us, I think, is that we ended up saying, uh, this one's by Hawkwind. And then some guy stood up and said, Hawkwind, and he got the whole, everyone behind us, because we played like three Hawkwind, after that we played like three Hawkwind covers in a row. And it was like, they got Hawkwind and they got the, even though there's no guitars in it, because St. Hawkwind's full of crazy synth, you know. Right. And it's, spaced, it's spaced out, but it's aggressive. It's not. There's. It's not ethereal, really. There is. Uh, there's moments of ethereality, but it always explodes into like, what the hell's going on? You know. <laughs> they, um That's what that that lineup, the three of us. I think we were more synth punk than anyone. I mean, I know Suicide. They are the most synth punk of all because they started it in in, uh, in New York. Just two guys. And they're they god. They're the gods, right? And then there's Devo, which they don't. I don't think they would call themselves synth punk, but they are the pinnacle, I think, of American creativity. Period. In anything in pop, that's what I think of Devo. That's why I did a tribute to them in Ape Operator. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, that's what kept you going. You know, we we were just hoping someone like that would hear. Like, I sent a record to. To Red Star back then, the Red Star label, Suicide was on, you know, Martin Rev and um, Alan Vega and Marty Thau, whose who name I didn't know at the time. And, uh, you know, I never heard back from them or anything. And I, I sent a, a record to, because probably, probably didn't get to them. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. know who to send stuff to. The only fan mail I ever sent was to John Fox when he disappeared. I <laughs> know, uh, you know, from Ultravox, they were a big influence on it.
0: One of the most popular records I think of in the discography of Futurist, this is the one you typically see most often uh, when people refer to the group, the piano uh, player piano EP. I'm sure you know not only this record, but also the first one that I showed too. They can go for a pretty penny on online. The originals uh, can go for, for hundreds for hundreds of dollars.
1: You, you all know i don't get any of that right
0: yes i do yeah, yeah of course of course uh it goes all to the person who's selling it <laughs> so, <Right> now, uh...
1: <laughs> them, hey, so i'm all up i'm all up for rewarding early adopters of everything <laughs> That's the only reason we're talking about this is because I was an early adopter of the synthesizer. You were. While everyone else was, those guys were all sort of giving us the finger, man. Yeah. I, mean, I don't want to get. I want to get that way. <laughs> I want to get on like sort of like that. But it's true. We were with they, they. You know, they the, the, the guitar guys. To me, they were still playing Chuck Berry chords. That way, I didn't see the subversiveness in that. They're playing Chuck Berry riffs and stuff. I like the American punk, early American punk, you know, like the Ramones and then a lot of that's because of the, again, the, it's so, so intelligent, the lyrics and the songs have such a, they're, they're really connected to, mm-hmm. to the roots of uh, rock and roll melodies and, and things like that. It just grinds it down to that's really what it is. When they extract the um, sort of surface version of it, which is a distorted, just distorted guitar and screaming, that's where it lost me. See, that's a, and that's where New Wave sort of came back in with its romantic sort of uh it wasn't anti-sex, I think like punk pretended to be. But yeah, basically we were sort of I think there was sort of a broward scene, and and then the open books and records started in the Deerfield Beach, right? And that's where I played that uh second guitar show that where I played the guitar and uh, and that's where uh that's where I met like, uh like David Parsons and the and Eddie from the eat and um, and so I um, might get the timeline here mixed up but there I turn on the drum machine it starts rattling So like the drum machines everyone's outside and I go outside to do that thing where I'm like let it play you know <laughs> and, then, and then Eddie O'Brien from the eat goes ah oh, what's this electronic shit <laughs> And I said oh that's me. <laughs> he goes, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I said, no, I go back in. It was hilarious. I thought it was so funny. And I said, no, it's not funny. I said, I did that on pub. Mm-hmm. I said, I was hoping someone would say that. So I went back in and I plugged in the guitar. And then um, I think um, the guy from the Breakers, there was a band called the Breakers, Breaker Bob. Uh, they were a good, good little power pop band that were unappreciated at the time. And um, one of the guys joined the band
0: who was a band from back then that you wish would have gotten more known that you just feel like really went under the radar a great deal?
1: Well, I think, I don't know what happened to the reactions is why well. they mm. just keep going. It seemed like they were like, they were like the template for like each, each persona that's right. You know you could just keep going i don't know i don't know i don't know maybe a personal thing and stuff but anyway i didn't know too much about the e i mean the people do keep going but why you know it's like uh, like why would futurists stop it's because it's like why why at the time it doesn't seem like uh, you didn't need to keep going here's a great example right and i think you probably haven't heard that i never heard anyone never ever mentioned this band black box approach up in west palm and then and, and also a band called Crossfire Choir, great little scenes going up there in Jupiter. I like that scene. We played up there a couple of times. And uh, Black Box Approach, they sounded as good as like, sort of like um, Duran Duran. Hmm. They were in like 81, 82. They were already pretty perfect with their the musicianship. And, and we were then getting into that band like Japan. And uh, so they were already like doing it. And it's like, man, they're awesome, you know? we were determined to do it that way. And and so each song we did is actually an example of a different way of trying things. Like some one of them might, you you can hear the sync pulse be turned up Mm. on some tracks. The pulse that was driving the sequencer and the drum machine to be in sync. deliberately turned up, you know, um, things like that. Or uh, you can hear where something's like, so much of it is manually played, which uh, was, uh, that makes it synth punk too. And then the other thing that makes it more punk than a lot of the other stuff is that we did it all ourselves, 100%. Like, we weren't waiting around for any label. Even to do the video, people came up and did just did it for us, you know? Right. Like, our video, we got more views on that than that, even the songs and stuff. The Army Now video is like, that was... That's why hmm. all that... That's an unedited video. That's where you see all, like, the, the stuff in the background. Like, uh, now, the Meteorite one, that was edited. So that's put together. But the Army Now one is great because you see, like... They're supposed to see me like running around and all that. Veronica you know, she did this um, um, box set. Right. She, I left it completely up to her. And Boxer. she did an amazing job. And she, I mean, this is how amazing she is. Yeah. I was like, so I really wanted that uh, 1982 version of Army Now on there. There's no room, you know, the the, the, the seven inch vinyls.
0: This on one the, on the flexi disc? Yeah, yeah. Mm.
1: That's the one on the flexi.
0: Mm-hmm. She
1: put that in there as a surprise for me. And that's like, okay. Oh, it's my mind. Isn't that awesome? That is. I mean, that's the kind of people I deal with in the music business. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, just doing what you want. I don't think anyone's ever told me what to do, ever. In the, Even on that, when I had the Craftwork tribute. That's the one, only person who ever told me what to do, <laughs> Ralph <laughs> from Craftwork. If he said he didn't like that song, it was gone. Yeah, that's the only person.
0: <laughs> how much of an then, how, much, how much of an influence was Craftwork on you? Oh
1: my God, that's there be no, that. So Craftwork, Craftwork uh, just totally absorbed your life. Like as soon as you brought uh, Trans Europe Express album, anyway, uh, you had. I mean, we heard Autobahn, and you know, again, it was. It seemed like maybe a flash in the pan. To someone to actually figure out how to write with all the this, you know, you know how hard it is to write even a like a A B part on those old sequences, <laughs> like Giorgio Moroder did yeah, yeah. Logic, the A B and then the bridge. For the bridge, you'd have to record it separately and then splice the tape, because you only had 16 steps, you know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's what they did. So of that stuff. When you hear things more elaborate than 16 or 32 steps, they have spliced it. So, um, I mean, especially like on um, something like, uh, I, I believe so, Switched on bar. And that time tapes were used a lot. They're like tape, they'd tape piece, tape piece. Because their sequencing power wasn't there, you know.
0: Were you a fan of uh, Wendy Carlos too?
1: Yeah, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that's a orange. Uh, and that was another thing, Bowie was using that too to sort of promote himself his whole, his whole image was like Alex, you know, he had the sort of space oddity photography. And he was like the first guy I remember sort of wore, wore his influences on his sleeve. And uh, actually, I really appreciated. So it's like, he really told you what to go, you know, sort of they sort of held your hand, say, hey, go check this out, go check that out. And I know I'm sure a lot of artists did it, but he did it in a way like, I think that was a sort of unselfish, And uh, since then it's become the norm, you know? (laughs) I mean, it's become the norm for people to wear their influences like, and I I mean, I kind of do it right from the beginning myself on that Futurist record. I mean, there's a lot of nods, you know, to craft work and Mm. like the uh, push me pull you thing. That's the story about the funny thing about that, you know? I mean, craft work blew our minds, as I was saying. And to hear like actual constructed songs because there was tangerine dream right and they were great but again it was ethereal and it went off it was a it was one it was linear you know so yeah so you have that thing going on but still no one's really writing songs you know until Kraftwerk, and Kraftwerk comes along and they've like got it like perfectly right the first time (laughs) and it's um it's it's timeless they're like every single album from then uh you know up you know everything they did is each album like decades from the last album? So you try and just getting trying. We just got to the point where we we sounded a little bit like um, <laughs> Trans Europe Express, mm. and then they come, you know, Then Man Machine comes out, and then the, like like uh, uh, Computer World came out. It's like ah, I give up, you know. <laughs> so, but, it was like, but it was that's what we in that. That's when we. The song, Push Me, Pull You, this was on that um, Cherry Red compilation that came out. Mm. And that's where we take the drum machine and we're putting it through the synthesizer and then Jack's playing with it. And then there's some like smatterings of, uh, you know, amateurish Casio, you know, (laughs) and um, and then some bad funk guitar, like it sounds like a sample, but isn't right. And then also in my mind, there's a song by um, um, Psychedelic Furs on The second album, I think uh, I love their first two albums, yeah. Uh, called uh, wedding the wedding song. So that, that I had that in my mind with the drum, and then so Jack did that, and we put him in the bathroom to try and get the sound, which was a thing we read, like people did, like in the 50s and stuff. Okay, but we did it to try and sound like the nine, the, what the 90s were gonna sound like, you know. And so we, we we got the drum machine, and then we, and we put the keyboard, we think, yeah, man, this is going to be like a cross between Trans-Europe Express and Numbers. And then we're driving in the car listening to it on the cassette, because we're recording it on Richie's cassette mm. by this Porter Studio at 4 And then, then we put it on the AM radio, and I'm so embarrassed. I don't remember this, the, the call letters. But it was the funk station, the, the r and And then Soul Sonic Force comes on, you know, with the... Uh, Africa, the, Yeah, the the sa- mm. it was not the sampling, but the t- total lift of the Trans Europe Express right, right. with the drums from Numbers. It's basically, but they didn't sample it; they actually played it. And we look at each other like, "Oh my god!" Like we, what? We're late again, man. You know, it's like <laughs> that was. So that that's what. So that came out like in '82 on the vinyl. But we recorded it i mean read re- me and richie we laugh about that but that's when we first heard that sort of what was really hip-hop it was like we were trying to kind of do that too and we did another thing called um, damsel in distress and that seemed to be more like it was really turning into um what freestyle was i think i think we were heading to that because it's like the, the structures of the songs are really good you know it gets a bit throwaway away when we first pressed our. Uh, record in uh, Miami. The guy there said, "Ah, you're using synthesizers, so you sound good, huh?" <laughs> That's what he said. He said, "Ah, you use synthesizers, so you sound mm-hmm. good, right?" I said, uh, "Yeah, right." <laughs> you, someone finally got it, but it was all right. But um, uh, this is what happened to me, I guess. Uh, was uh, all of us is we kind of fizzled because we weren't having the same kind of fun. Mm wasn't fun, we didn't blow anything big or anything, but there weren't really any opportunities. We should have either moved and people say we should have moved. So I was thinking like, why if we moved to New York, right? And we tried to play with like suicide and try to get in the no wave scene. Cause I really got into no wave and I actually wrote a little article about when James Chance and the t- Contortions came down and played in 1980. Uh, again, Daisy and the mouth of the rat and um, Eric Moss and those guys. I think they brought down uh, James Chance and the Contortions for the New Wave New Year's 1980, which was like it was like being a dream come true. I mean, I thought we were the only people buying those records, and, uh, and we were. But they managed to get them down. And Muscar- Robert Mascaro, I guess, must have had something to do with it because the cichlids opened and the e. I got to cover it for the Mouth of the Rat, and uh, I'm a big fan of James Chance. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, amazing. Uh, I just took guitar. That's got me back into guitar. and getting me back into guitar. The No New York album, Brian Eno's production, which was just like so stripped down. It's great.
0: A lot of the articles I've read have said that the Futurisk shows back in the day were legendary. What made those shows so legendary?
1: <laughs> I know, internet farming planting those legendary words. No. No, yeah, they were they were legendary. Uh, in for real though, they were. Uh, they're legendary, every single one of them was it like either really bad or really good or totally insane.
0: Yeah.
1: I think our show was amazing. Most places we played a lot of high schools for some reason. And then we played colleges. And the, those shows were great. FAU was great. Uh, and the way we started out, what we did, okay. First, I had the one vision of futures, and then I took whoever came to join, hmm. and those people came, and the way they looked and dressed is the persona we chose. So, so Jeff, yeah, he was always in his leather jacket stuff and the long curly hair. He looked like Ian Hunter or something, you know. And then, um, and then uh, Frank Lardino, me and him were really into Sparks, and we really dug like um, Ron Mayo hmm. uh, you know, that he would like. You know look at his watch and stuff like, like the, the, the singer was getting on his nerves he, he had something better to do than play the piano that kind of image so uh, frank would be the i mean that guess he, he was preppy pretty ahead of his time mm. with the preppy thing so he came off preppy and like uh, and i was like uh in the military thing with the guitar and the guitar scene so um so what we would do we would uh we would devolve <laughs> it could be like Devo. so we start off with, like, the electric-sounding synths and the most advanced-sounding ones. And then at the end, by the end, we were doing rockabilly. Like, we used to mm. do 20 Flight Rock. We did reggae. We did Is um, Shining by um, Bob Marley and Legalize mm. legalized Marijuana by um, um, Peter Tosh. Peter Tosh. Fingerprint File by the Rolling Stones off of the uh, It's Only Rock and Roll album. It's such a great song. Mm. Still, man, I should say it. someone else will redo it before I do. It. But it's such a great song. It's been yeah. it's been 50 years. No one's done it again. So we do we'd filter in these songs, which now they sound like real obvious covers, but no one knew, knew them back then. Right. Our audience, there may be one person that hung out at open records or that would come up and know. I mean, the others, no one had heard those songs yet. So some people would think they were our songs.
0: Did you guys ever have any shows like outside of South Florida? Did you ever play further north? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where we else did you play?
1: play? Um, we played up in, um, in Georgia on Peach Street, right? In Atlanta, Georgia. And it was a place called TV Dinners.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: And, uh, <laughs> so this is where I need to go. This is where <laughs> we get down to the, they uh, were to get caught color- Get culture cancelled 50 years after my death, like everyone. But, um, yeah, it was a fun story. And it was, yeah, it was a great, yeah, we played there. It was a really good, good story. Uh, we played there and it, uh, we didn't realise till the second day that it was uh, all transsexuals. <laughs> and it was, yeah, my, it so was always like, we, I said to Jack, like, man, this woman are beautiful, man. But they they're not talking to me or anything. Like, really stuck up. And so then the next by the next day, we knew it It was like, maybe just, you know, we had fun. It was like, man, he's like. but Jack went out, like, I think to like, you know, smoke a cigarette, whatever, and come back. And he said, tell me. he was like, yeah, no, I know, Jack. <laughs> yeah, it was memorable. And that was. Um, <laughs> they said, yeah, we made it back at the acoustic guitar. I brought an acoustic guitar with me to, to smash on stage. And it never got. It never made it to the.
0: Uh,
1: <laughs> didn't even make it to the stage, um, in the hotel room prior. But um, so anyway, yes. But that was uh, that was a good show. There were good shows. I mean, the musically they were all really good. Um, I wish there was more footage. Uh, I mean, there's. I don't think there's any. There was one time we played in a freezer. Uh, okay. It was so, in a freezer. How did
0: that, how did that um, come about? You know, that
1: weird shows. Jack was working at a fish fish place, whatever, what do you call that? Fish plant. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and we couldn't find anywhere to play a show. And it was the guy's birthday. And it, he had a giant, giant ass freezer. <laughs> Basically as big as, you know, twice as big as, twice as big as the, you can't see this side, but it was a freezer. Wow. An empty freezer, mind you, you know. But so we played it. And that was a it was a really good. Show yeah. People came in, we stood in the freezer, <laughs> we got paid pretty good. I mean, we probably wow. got paid real good. And then all I remember was was Richie for like two months complaining about the smell of fish in his Moog synthesizer. Yeah, and he was like, Man, fish frozen fish smell no, true. No. And like, like <laughs>
0: so you all played in this freezer when there was like fish and other seafood in there. Like, I wasn't, I no, any-
1: had removed. They removed all that stuff. Okay. The, fish, the, the smell remains. The smell, of
0: course. It's like one of the yeah. strongest smells. Yeah. yeah. They, you
1: know, they removed what they could. Uh you know, it was like they moved moved it all out. There was some crate, empty crates and stuff. But like they sm- smell like, yeah like I said, you once you were immersed in it, it sort of you didn't even, <laughs> you didn't notice.
0: <laughs> was that the strangest place you ever played a show? Was in a freezer like that? Oh
1: no, no, no. Uh, there's something,
0: just, there's something more strange than that.
1: Yeah, but futurist. Now, if you want to get outside the realm of futurist, yeah, yeah, futurist is only the first five years of this.
0: Sure. Ambience. Where was the strangest place you've ever played?
1: Again, I don't want to get culture cancelled and laugh at certain things, but anyway, I don't care. But um, <laughs> there you go. Um, now I'm just kidding. I'm over. I'm, I'm being. <laughs> but um, <laughs> sorry. But uh, this was the one. This was the last gig of futurist. It's a sad story, actually. And uh, by this time, Jack was gone, missing. We don't know where Jack was. The last seed, getting his jobs. Uh, Jack was awesome, he's my best friend. Now, I will reconnect with him later in uh, in 2010 on Facebook only to find, and I'm I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but I got to mention before I forget that he became a really famous Elvis impersonator. Interesting mentioned in the book and everything. It's in a book called, I am Elvis. He's in it. It's on my, on one of the Facebook pages, I posted pictures and stuff. But yeah, anyway. So, yeah. so Jack was, uh, Jack had uh, disappeared. Hmm. And then, so me and Rick we used to practice at my brother's house and we'd play all the time, play all the time. And the people across the street used to hear us practice and all that. They asked us to play a show uh, Jack was gone and it was just me and Richie. And then I would sometimes like practice there by myself, like to records and stuff like that. And then they asked uh, the, the people across the street, God bless them, very nice people. I guess they heard us practicing and and they said they would, they would we'd like to play a show, and it was at a barbecue, you know, for the blind. And we did we'd like, yeah, we'd do it for free, you know. We don't mind he goes, no, 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 we just they got a budget. You know, it was like, so we say he took the minimum, whatever, you know. And so Richie uh, agrees to do it. We show up to this thing, and then the only place to play is like right by the, free, the freaking barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> so Richie's got his icy fish icy, mm. smelling Moog. It won't be much longer, you know. So we start playing this thing, and then it's under this, this um, sort of like a shelter thing. My synth, I do old synths were very unpredictable. There's a little thing in those old things called a J wire that would like hook up the sound with the mm. you know the button you press. Right, <laughs> you know, the key. So when you press it, it goes up to the next key, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So here we are, first song, you know, and we've Jack and we've got a drum machine, my synth that has all the sequences and stuff in it, like. Get stuck on one note. <laughs> I need to try and explain this to people, but I don't. So, you know, and this is a barbecue and it's for the uh, uh, visually challenged. So, and it's supposed to be like a, you know, to be nice to these people, not to torture them, you know? Mm, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <clears throat> so, like, here we are. And I said, Richie, Richie, please, <laughs> I don't know where to go. I got I to hide. I don't know what to do you know and he said I look at him he turns around and his face is covered in like grease and smoke (laughs) he looks at me he's like son of a bitch bitch." (laughs) (laughs) oh my god and then uh and I'm standing there we start trying to make it like some sort of hip-hop kind of sort of a beat-driven kind of it's way too soon for that you need like another 30 years <laughs> before it's just like the bass part and the job you know what i mean so um and so then uh, uh, here we are and we say well we said we're going to play 45 minutes and he said yeah but people are walking around in disarray you know and it's uh so suddenly while well, we're standing there the guy like the guy in charge and it's always like a big guy looks kind of like you and then <laughs> With, with a hat like that, too, <laughs> he was nice, and he's nice at the beginning. After this and the smell of wafting weed, you know, with like a with a look on his on his face, like yes, sorry, it was Jack, it was the drummer, you know, we do, you and it's like okay, we'll never play here again, we know, but yeah, <laughs>
0: right. I would assume you were banned from playing there ever again. <laughs> exactly, he's
1: the drummer. He wouldn't be authentic. Come on. <laughs> That's uh, a, the weirdest yeah. show I've ever done was, unfortunately, mm. uh, one where my uh, like my mom came to it. Okay. And my, and my wife and my son, uh, one of the few shows they all came to. And this was in Roanoke, as uh, when I did the 8-Bit Operators mm. thing, did the Kraftwerk tribute. You know, we did a Depeche Mode tribute. And you could get all that, by the way, at 8bitops.com. Anyway, so, and uh, so, um, yeah, so I, because of that, I, um, I got some uh, interesting gigs. I got to do uh, some stuff in a museum um, with David Brown, who's an awesome curator. And then also, I got to play uh, a circuit bent 8 bit performance with, uh, with a full symphony orchestra, uh, a Leopold Mozart's Toy Symphony. Uh, basically what well, the the uh, intent was to transfer because i don't know if you know uh, leopold uh, Mozart the famous mozart's father Leopold when he was a child when he was young wrote this little symphony i think i got that right Might be wrong. and it's a, a symphony for toys one like a rattle comes in and then the little toy piano comes in and then all the little toys come in it's called the toy symphony So my idea was to take those things, and because at the time circuit bending was a thing we were doing, it still is a big thing. Circuit bending is where you make music from finding a a circuit, opening up your speak and spell, and taping bits together wrongly, and then making them say what you do things more like what you want them to do, or totally unpredictably glitch. So I did this thing where I used the speak and spell and a handheld theremin and a couple of other Furby, a circuit bent Furby, to try and do this Leopold Mozart thing. And then, oh God, it was a disaster, really. Uh, Because it was 5,000 people, and they didn't know it was a disaster. Uh, I mean, they thought that's how it was supposed to be. They thought it was supposed to be disastrous. It was good, It, it, it was two nights. The first night was, that was the weirdest night. Because what they did, instead of me hearing the orchestra and myself through the speakers and them also hearing us, they put all the orchestra on one side of the of the like the hall, and then all my circuit bent noises on the other side. So I can't hear the orchestra, I was just making these noises. It was like, so I don't know how that went, but it must have sounded horrible. Now the next <laughs> night we played at next night we played at Virginia Tech. All I know is my mom saying, Oh, he he the conductor looks so confused. So the next day though. We played at uh, Virginia Tech. I played Virginia Tech with the orchestra Mm -hmm. and it went really well. And it was all really good. It was a smaller um, venue and it was on a table and everything. And then it all went really well, except for one thing. And that's that I forgot to take, when you leave the stage, this is nothing you learn if you're doing stupid stuff, nothing to do with music, but you have to Mm -hmm. learn to take the batteries out of your Furby when you leave the stage, you know, you know yeah. that. Every <laughs> musician knows when you leave the stage, do you the Furby on stage? Take the darn batteries mean. out, will you? Otherwise, in the middle of the next piece, The Waltz of the Flowers yeah, by Tchaikovsky, where the conductor tries to bring a tear to the eye of the audience, your damn Furby will st- <laughs> <laughs> yell out, don't leave me. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. And the, the guy to this day, the conductor thinks I did it on purpose. Oh, wow. But like, he's like, they all cracked up. It was like, that's like the bet. That, I don't know. Did he confront you? Yeah. they well, first couple of security guards came back. Oh, wow. And with all my gear in their arm, they got it all. And they said, he thinks you did it on purpose. I was like, what? <laughs> No, I said, no, what? oh, my God, I forgot to take the battery out. The Furbies, you know, the, know if, you know, your, the Furbies, you leave them on the their battery. You know, that's the whole thing. They sit around and learn stuff that you say. And then, then they wake up later and say, hey, wake up. You know? Yeah. Wake up. So you take the batteries out because you can't, they don't have time to take all your gear off the stage. Right. So you leave your gear on the stage. They're got to finish their symphonies and stuff. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't know how many waltzes you do in a day. Yeah, but um you know this was one i ruined apparently it's terrible so yeah they come and i said man no as it is a Furby. look it up online dude look it up online if you leave the battery in it will it will come to life come to life inadvertently and then so um, then they then the conducted david and he was in a wheelchair he came up to me in a wheelchair for some reason i don't know what that was about he said he was he was very uh he was worn out i had drained him <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> so, so this music thing you know yeah no wow. he was sort of having me on a bit too he might have been sort of winding me up you know but it was that's funny but i'm sure there's weirder places that i can't think of right now
0: thanks again for uh for sending me the the record oh the yeah yeah box the red window record. And uh, my, the window on my copy right now is clear. Cause I have the record on the, on the outside. So, uh, but uh, that's what makes the window red is the red yeah. vinyl. So uh, when I first put it on the turntable and listened to it, well, one, I didn't know who sent it. I was like, well, wait a minute. Where'd this come?" I didn't know what it was. The only reason why I knew what it was, cause I looked in the dead wax and I saw it said the red window. And I knew that was one of your, one of your, one of your newer projects. No label, no real mention of the, the album title or the group no. or anything like that. It's so
1: it's clear red vinyl, like a pool of blood. Yes. In the corner on your turntable.
0: That's exactly what it was you like. Didn't,
1: you didn't see through it, it had a label. <laughs> yes. In some ways, it was the reverse of the black window. It's uh, me and, and Josh Strawn, who was in Shakespeare with me. You know, we got pretty serious. This is us getting serious, you know. He, he produced it in some stuff we did back in 99. It's sort of, I don't know what genre to call it really, but it was, it's sort of going kind of where the, the David Sylvian stuff kind of. And um, I went to New Orleans and we've got a whole nother album recorded. We recorded in New Orleans. Nice. And so it's a sort of New Orleans and um, Florida, uh, that one and Roanoke. So, and, and Josh is also from Roanoke and I believe he's there now too. Uh, and in Roanoke is where the original was uh, was was recorded. Mm. So kind of it's a strange album that we didn't really promote it much because we were kind of shy because it was during the pandemic, and it's kind of a morning, you know, like a morning. We were mourning kind of Bowie and you know Scott Walker and uh, you know got so many of that so many years like that. Lou Reed even you know there's just so many people, and uh, but especially like Bowie and and that. And, um, and we were thinking about, that was kind of stuff that always reminded us uh, of Bowie. And so I, 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 I convinced Josh to pull out his sacks again. <laughs> his nice. sacks he's afraid he didn't want to get, like, beaten up. Or uh, I tell you, it's like a pariah. I mean, he's a genius, Josh is. Um, he sort of, he joined, joined Shakespeare sort of as my protege. I don't think he, he reminds me saying, he was a, that was one thing when I went to Roanoke that I appreciated. There, there wasn't a lot of ageism. I mean, I was like 40, 50, and these 20, 25-year-olds started a band with me. It wasn't like I didn't feel like old, you know? It was kind of right. cool. I just thought I'd mention that. Uh, we ended up doing an album on uh, Happy Couples Records. Uh, Mitch Easter engineered it from REM and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. We went to his studio, We recorded some parts, and, uh, and mixed it down. We were sort of doing kind of like the dark... Interpol, you know, we started like '96, about the same time probably they started out, I think. So we got those three albums there, the But so that led to me and Josh's, you know, uh, um, collaboration, and we still we hope to put it on the road. We did a live thing um, during the pandemic, and it's uh, it was a live stream. Um, It's up online on CVLT Nation. I like sending it to people who don't know it's coming. (laughs)
0: Mission <laughs> accomplished.
1: Mission accomplished. And like oh, it's, I always so wanted that. When you said that, I said, oh god, I'm so glad you said that. And I don't have to keep it. So I was just waiting for someone to say, man, I've got this thing in the mail. What is it? Yeah, no like, idea. It's really like it was <laughs> like, like done by was it done by accident? <laughs> <laughs> it done? No, it was only done by <laughs>
0: Uh, the vinyl's still available, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I think they're still available. It's limited, yeah, yeah. though. There were only, what, like a couple hundred copies of it?
1: Uh, like 300.
0: Yeah, that's not many. Yeah. So uh,
1: There's uh, got to be 100 left or so, I think. But it's one the, of the things I'm most proud of, you know? I think it's one of my best things I've been on.
0: It's good. Yeah, it's really good. I did see a review uh, that Pure Honey did on the record.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Abel Fogar. I love him. Everything falls, comes full circle. It's kind of it's crazy stories. Mm-hmm. Like the, uh, like my brother became, um, I mean, he got to to be the general manager of Astroworks during their golden era, you know, with Chemical Brothers, Fatboy Slim, Daft Punk. Perfect for me to say, hey, can you get this, thing? end up meeting Kraftwerk? I mean, well, it's crazy how that happened. Yeah. Right when I'm working on this thing for the tribute to Kraftwerk, my brother's working on signing them to Astroworks. It's insane. And he's nice enough to let me meet him and hand him a Game Boy with, a, yeah. with some work programmed in. And it's like, it's so nuts that he did it. Yeah. I thank you forever for that. So then we end up, ends up we actually was going to be at a different label. And then when Astralworks heard it, they chose to put it out. So we ended up being on Craftworks label. So that was great. So then with the Devo one, now, that we did the Beatles one in between, and that one, that was nuts. That took off really well on Band. I think we got an email saying we were the first band to make 5,000 on Bandcamp. It was the one song, the um, Tomorrow Never Knows. We did, a you know the Beatles, Tomorrow Never Knows? We did a mega mix of it. And it got shared on um, Reddit. And this is 2009. And it's done and it's composed exactly to the template of the taped piece on the White Album by uh, Micro Orchestra. Uh, so that, anyway, that was great. That, I wanted someone to bring that out on vinyl. I'd like to bring all these out on vinyl or CD. The Diva, then the Depeche Mode one ended up being like, really, that's another one where I was halfway done to get ready to bring it out. And then someone came in and said, no, let us bring it out. You know, that, that's great when that happened. In, in all these cases, I got to talk to, you know, except the Beatles, I got to talk to one of the members of the band. And uh, these aren't normal tributes. Most tributes, bands don't want anything, you know, like, okay, that's nice. But this one, the indeed the Devo one, I talked to Jerry Casale, mm-hmm. by, by mail, who my brother, Errol, got me in touch with. Um, obviously, the uh, Ralph Hooter and Kraftwerk, who I met in person. And I thought that's, that's a pretty cool thing. That's a unique thing. The Depeche Mode one too, I ended up, uh, being on uh, an email with um, you know Martin Gore, who's a, a, the the writer, and I got right. to meet Vince Clark And um, to, with Martin Gore, one interesting thing I like to say, I mean, the guy was really cool. We, uh, if you listen to that Depeche Mode thing I sent you, right? Yeah, it's a really different versions. Yeah, and all our stuff, mm. we take some liberties with that with our arrangements of people's mm. songs. Otherwise, you know, we always figure, why do it? you don't want to do it the same? You don't even want to do an 8-bit version that's the same. You also want to change the the approach. So that's what we did. And and a lot of fans get really mad, like fans of Kraftwerk or fans of Depeche Mode. What have you done? Right. But then they need to know the bands themselves liked it. Depeche Mode drove, I get an email saying, yeah, they're driving around in the bus on tour right now listening to it. Get right back to it. it's like oh my god this is awesome yeah so anyway so this is i just got to tell this story so there's a couple of songs on there that do take some liberties had some extra words even you know so then there's a thing where you get into is it a cover or is it a derivative you know is it a parody if it's a derivative now you have to add this person's name onto it they have to sign off that ain't gonna happen we're not Weird Al doing a parody where Michael says, okay, I don't mind my name being on a song with Weird Al forever, you know? So it's not a parody, it's not a derivative. Mm-hmm. It's a copy, which it's just a cover song. So there's this email where there's the publishing people and my guy who's helping, you know, Nick, and then uh, the, and we're going back and forth. And then uh, Depeche Mode is in the CC, you know, Martin Gore is seeing all this. I said, no, it's not derivative. And actually, uh, my response was about this one particular track where an artist goes into a uh, he raps in the mid he raps. It's clean, the song clean. Yeah. And in the middle, he raps it's his own words. Obviously, those words aren't originally in the song, so they're trying to say those are new words. So what I said, I said no, they're not. Those are considered improvisation, and all of this is improvisation of this of the of the arrangement. Right. The arrangement's are the same, the chord structure is the same, the words are the same, the melody's the same. In the middle, there's a refrain where the guy takes a solo. Oh, it's not a guitar solo; it's a voice solo. And then we are arguing about it, and suddenly Martin Gore chimes in, says, "I approve all these songs as covers." Awesome. He like shut them all up, like, "Hey, in my songs, I listen to them." You know, I guess is what he was thinking, but that's all he says. Yeah. And he had to decide it's his song Is some Is this a cult? Is this a derivative? Is it a cover? You know, is it a, a parody? You know, I mean, you can see if they, if an artist doesn't have a good sense of humor and you cover their song in the wrong sort of refrain, they could certainly see it as exactly and as a joke and like sue you. Yeah.
0: Will there ever be a futurist reunion?
1: Well, they can't be because Jack passed away. Uh, so they can't be him. And, mm-hmm. and um, what year? A, what year did he pass? a seventeen. Yeah, twenty seventeen. And then it was. Um, yeah, we we were planning to. We were talking about it, but we like we knew it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And then he just told me, man. it kept like, it's like a lot of people. It's not them It's not be a downer or anything, but a lot of people are in their fifties and stuff. Like nowadays, in their sixties early 60, uh, my generation, they seem to get worn out, you know, it's like, I don't know. we were talking at the end where he was, we were going to try and get like a little, like a movie together where we would all get together and just try and get the third, do a song, you know, like something like that. It's just, you know, just for the hell of it. And then, uh, but we knew it wasn't going to happen, you know, I mean, and then uh, Richie and Frank, they're, they're around, they are the drummer that's not on any of the recordings. Uh, Vinnie, he's a nice guy. I'm not sure if he still drums. I like him. I mean, you could uh, you could sort of put together a sort of kind of Frankenstein version of Futurist yeah. <laughs> you know. But I I wouldn't. You know, it was like mm. those guys don't they don't want to. I, I think maybe Frank. You know, those guys might do a Radio Berlin or something. I don't know. They could do their thing. But I can do my. You know, if I wanted to do my songs, I mean, right. I did do a, I did a version of Lonely Streets with Red Window, this live thing, you know, so I, I, I got like songs that had after then and before then, but they've, you know, I know, I guess most of the fans I have are from Futurist, but I do have some fans from Receptors too.
0: Were you, were you at all involved in any way with any of the nineties kind of rave scenes that were going on?
1: No, I think it was a mistake that I wasn't, you know, <laughs> because I thought it was kind of over, you know, and that's what I said. Uh, re- Future should have just kept, kept doing what they were doing, or, or, or I should have just kept doing. Instead, I sort of went via to what I would felt like doing next.
0: You know? mm-hmm. I didn't feel mm-hmm. like
1: getting more electronic. I just felt like sort of I really felt like the guitar again, you know. I sort of got, I had a band called the Influence UK in Florida before I left, and uh, it was actually my first midlife crisis. So I've had a few, but that was. <laughs> That was the first one. Well, actually, it's pretty rocker. It's punk. It's the one that's the least. Lo- it gets the least love, but I think it's the one that was might be the most. Honestly, me. It's, it sounds like Hawkwind. After, you know, Hawkwind stripped down. We didn't really. We released the cassette, and this is the good story about that. I brought the cassette to Peaches. And to the one in, um, in West Palm, which was on Palmetto. So this is like 91. No, no, maybe it's like 90. And then I say, can I leave? So, hey, can I leave one up front? And the guy says, yeah, sure. You can leave one up front. And I go to the other places. And that, that cover's kind of bad. It's, got a, it's like you get sued for it. The it cover's like Madonna. It's that famous picture of, you know, a million people use it with uh, Elvis and. Uh, okay and Nixon, and then we stuck Madonna in there, you know, touching herself. So It's <laughs> a good measure. Yeah. And so some people wouldn't put it up on the counter. But then, uh, but this guy would. And so I went back the next time, it's the only place that sold them all. I said, hey, man, that's pretty cool. You sold them all. He goes, yeah, I've been putting them back up for you. He said, oh, that's pretty cool. Anyway, it turned out, it's, it's his name was Brian. It turned out to be the, uh, Marilyn Manson, actually. And I met him a couple more times after that, and I reminded him of it. We used to rehearse at the same place, a place called Jeda's, and this is Florida. And this is, a I don't know if you ever heard of the Broken Spectacle. There's a guy called Ed Hale. He had a place called Jeda's, a rehearsal space. Yeah, so uh, Marilyn Manson was like the, our only fan. They had them and Ed Hale uh, for the Influence UK. And so that, that other, other than that, it was me and my friend, Clive, who were both born within six months in the same hospital in Hackney, England, in London.
0: Wow.
1: And he still had a company accent too, so go pick on him. <laughs> I don't I know why we all... So, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so we met over here in the 90s. Isn't that crazy?
0: That is crazy.
1: That was one of the funnest bands. I like played five days a week with that band. That has really got mm. really good musician wise. Like me and my, I got married to my wife, and then we were in New York 1984. And for the hell of it, I had some futurist records on me. And then she convinced me to drop some off in Bleecker Street. And it was the last ones I had. And I was done with it, you know, it's like, this is our oh, Jack's gone. Oh, yeah. So I was kind of, you know, it's kind of embarrassing at that point, I gotta be honest. And so my brother, my younger brother, and he gets to the job at Astral Work. And then, uh, He's comprising these great bands, all the great stuff. He's, I'm so proud of him. Like, all the good stuff's coming out from his label. It's like, this is great. What next? What next? You know? And so then he calls me. He said, You know, guess what? Uh, he goes, I just had dinner with this guy, um, James Murphy. You know who he is? I said, uh, I don't think so. He said, Well, the DFA. I didn't really know him yet. And then uh, so he told me about him. He says, Yeah, they got this thing. Uh, he's got this song called Losing My Edge. And then, and then so um, I say, okay. He said, yeah, they're pretty big. They're going, they're going, they're going to be at my national works, and so that's why I'm talking to them because they're there. So yeah, he, and so he says, so I'm sitting at the dinner table, and then James Murphy pulls out your record, and says, hey, I picked this up on the record on store on Bleecker Street, and it says here E. Jeremy Color My brother's name is Errol, and so I'm Emin. Jeremy Collins right. I mean, his first name is Emin actually, but it's E-Jerry Collison. So he says, I have got a bet with my <laughs> with his friend um, that this is you. And my brother's like, oh my God, I can't believe. He goes, no, but that's my brother, It's my brother. So that's hilarious. So he contacts me and he puts it on a, um, he had a really good uh, remix for um, uh, Colette. There's a fashion house in uh, Paris. They put out these uh, sort of collector's item CDs that had a lot of sort of the electric class stuff and early stuff in the when that rave stuff sort of uh, turning into pop. James Murphy was nice enough to put us, uh, Push Me Pull You, as the first track. So that was pretty awesome. You know, and it's mixed in there with everyone that was on major labels. You know, a lot of people don't realize we weren't on a major label. lot of these other bands, even the punk, the punk bands from out west and stuff you know they tried they were on major labels they had the handheld in in a lot of way you know we never did
0: uh i want to play something really quick for you and see if you if you remember uh where this is from
1: futurisk i want to grab a nice tight close-up of this here this is your. Is this your latest? Album? Play a piano EP. Yes, it's five songs. It's yeah. a mini album. Ed right. Rich. You can get it in all. Yeah. got another one over here, which yeah. is your. Yeah. So
0: that that was the uh, and that, thankfully that is posted and uh, t- to the uh, to the YouTube. Uh, that was from 1982 on the Ed Rich Rock TV show. Yeah, he's uh, awesome. Dude. Was that the only time that you all ever did a televised interview like that?
1: Futuristic, yeah. yeah. We did a lot of radio interviews, though. We must yeah. have done about. I think we did at least seven radio interviews. There's one that I wish we didn't do. I wish we did, but a few hours sooner than we showed up. <laughs> this is, a, like I told you, like all our shows, you said, hey, why are they legendary? Yeah. they really good or really bad, you know. But like this one was, I wish we had an appointment to go and do an interview on WVUM. Is it V-U-M? Yes,
0: W-V- yeah, V-U-M was a college radio in Miami, yep.
1: Yeah, man, and she's a really good DJ and stuff. And it was the day that Talking Heads played with that whole big ensemble band they had. And so we were gonna go on right after them and then meet them and all that stuff. And I don't know what the hell we did, but we we ended up showing up like two two hours late, three hours late, because we had a show that night too. Mm. So we and she she like laid into us, you know, she was like, Hey man, I had the talking heads we're ready to meet you. I told him about you. It's like, oh damn, we mess up. And I look at we're getting ready to do the interview. I, I know we go on, we do the interview, and she sort of uh hostile, I forgot her name. She said something like futurist is that isn't that exploitive of the futurist movement? And I said like uh, isn't this show cool, isn't this show exploitive of the word punk then? It was like the punk hour or something, and she said. Yeah. So he got combative, you know. So then, um, and then I le- we were done, and Jack said something like, "You know, Jack was literally a loose cannon, like really." And he tried to make up for it by telling her how beautiful she was. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. We totally went over completely like a lead balloon, you know and so as we're walking out i look out the window and there's, there's talking heads like i looked at this glass window where the studio was and there was the stage like I, if i could put my hand through the window i could have like touched one of the backing singers there they are doing the whole thing that ends up on that um stop making sense tour you know yeah i felt like that just felt so bad that we that was like admit that was a bummer that one and we played that night and um it was not. It was a like a really bad show, kind of. <laughs> um, yeah. So like stupid stuff like that.
0: As we kind of close out the interview, I kind of want to give you an opportunity to uh, share any final thoughts. Anything you want to share to supporters over the years, fans of your work. Uh, I'll let you kind of close out the interview with any final words or comments.
1: It's amazing to see uh, people just finding work that you did a long time ago you know that you haven't touched and and just sort of watch it turn into something and you find out what it actually was because you didn't know what it was because it's like being in the forest for the trees you know you don't see the forest till you pull out of the and look down on it and the um and so now I kind of nice like you said that naivety um it's no use trying to capture it it's not there so you know, uh, that's why I sort of changed the, the format of what I'm doing. Or I don't really change genres. My music, if you listen to anything I've done, it still sounds to me like what futurists would be doing if they stayed together, because it would be me. So if you haven't checked out the other the the other different stuff, like the case iron and the, the red window stuff, the red window stuff is is sort of where I'm at right now. And it's uh mostly analog synths and stuff. And but we're not snobbish, like not total analog. Sometimes you want there's things you use digital for. <laughs> it's a, you know, there's we use a lot of uh, we used a few of the the um you know modular synths. And I went through about a year and a half of being addicted to those and stuff. And and I sort of went back to my old, I like my old um, you know, my Roland and uh stuff that I can just write songs quick. I'm more into the songwriting part, you know. I do still like the analog, but yeah i don't know i don't know where the uh, meets together like that there's a, i have a lot of different music but i'd like to thank everyone anyone who likes any one of those things i don't think there's anyone who likes all of them if there are those are really the people i'd like to thank the most because that means they like wow we must be on the same page like totally <laughs> thanks right, thanks for letting me say that